Chapter 12, Part 4 of History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries by S. Cheatham. Chapter 12 Discipline and Life of the Church. Part 4 The desire for the more perfect state produced also further effects. If the higher life involved the renunciation of marriage, of property and of secular business, it could not be led in the midst of an ordinary household, or among the usual cares and distractions of a world still half-pagan. Hence arose the strong impulse which led multitudes to betake themselves to utter solitude in the desert, or to form communities in which the spiritual life should be the first object of existence. Hermits and monks were a protest against the merely secular life, only relieved by a few religious observances, into which too many Christians allowed themselves to fall. The motives which led the various brethren to become ascetics no doubt differed as the men differed, but it is not difficult to understand the charm which, in the midst of a restless and yet enervated world, was found in a life which offered, or seemed to offer, rest and freedom from worldly care and the terrible calamities which fell upon the empire in the fifth and sixth centuries no doubt increased the desire to fly away from tumult to calm and safety solitude the perfect quiet of a hut or cave in the desert where a spring a little garden and a palm tree supplied all that was necessary for human life in the genial climate of egypt first drew men to leave the haunts of their fellows we have seen already how saint anthony withdrew into the wilderness many soon followed his example and it was not long before the unrestrained fancy of the solitaries led them to adopt strange forms of life. Some spent long years on the top of lofty pillars. Simeon, the most noted of these pillar saints, who lived in the early part of the fifth century, established himself on a column which was finally raised to the height of sixty feet from the ground. There he remained some thirty years, exhorting to repentance those who flocked to him, settling disputes, making enemies to be at one, converting pagans men otherwise careless were arrested by so extraordinary a spectacle the danger that men would come to think that some special merit attached to this form of mortification was early pointed out by nilus himself an ascetic there was nothing worthy of praise in living on a pillar but there was a great danger lest a pillar saint should be intoxicated by the undeserved praise which he actually received quote, he that exalteth himself shall be abased unquote. a still more strange phenomenon were the boski or grazers who divested themselves of almost all the attributes of humanity. They had no habitations, but wandered about like wild beasts, on mountains and uncultivated plains, supporting a wretched existence on such herbs and fruits as the earth brought forth of itself. They seem, however, to have come together for the services of the church. But Christian virtues, the excellencies of those who by their very profession belong to a body, cannot be fully developed in solitude. It is hard to reconcile the life of a hermit with the essential character of Christian love, since the hermit regards his own good only, while charity seeketh not her own. Nor will a man in solitude come to the knowledge of his own defects, since he has no one to admonish and correct him. Quote, Woe to him that is alone when he falleth, and hath not another to lift him up. Unquote. Hence men soon came to feel the necessity for community in the religious life. A common life brings with it the necessity of rule and order, and so tends to correct the fantastic excesses into which solitaries too readily fell. The first step towards the formation of a religious community was taken when a number of hermits built their cells near to each other. Quote, 
like the wigwams of an Indian encampment, clustering round the chapel of the community. Such an assemblage of huts crowded together was called a lora. The hermits who inhabited it assembled together for divine service, and admitted the authority of a chief, generally the person whose fame had drawn others about him. The most famous founder of communities of this kind was St. Sabbath, the remains of whose earliest buildings are still to be found on the river Kidron. But the first who gave a definite rule and order to a body of men, withdrawn from the world for the sake of religion and living a common life, seems to have been Pacomius, who gave rules for a body of monks dwelling together on an island of the Nile called the Bena. He founded not merely a monastery but an order, for daughter monasteries soon sprang up which followed the rule of Tabena and acknowledged the authority of its head, called the Abbas, or Father. It is not easy to say how much of the extant rule which bears the name of Pacomius is really due to him, how much to subsequent development, but the general characteristics we can scarcely err in attributing to the founder. The brethren of this society were taught to avoid the temptations which arise from idleness. They plaited mats and baskets from the reeds of the Nile, they cultivated the ground, they built boats. Tailors, smiths, carpenters, and tanners were found among them. The sale of their products first supplied the wants of the society, and then that which remained over was given to relieve the wants of the sick and the poor and needy. Prisoners also were not forgotten. Twice a year the superiors of the several daughter communities met at the chief monastery, when each gave an account of the administration of his office. A candidate for admission to the brotherhood was not received at once. He was first asked whether he was seeking refuge from some civil penalty, whether he was a free man and therefore competent to choose for himself his mode of life, whether he was capable of resigning all that he had. If he was able to answer these questions satisfactorily, he had to submit to a three years' period of probation. Finally, if he passed through this successfully, he was admitted to the Brotherhood, solemnly pledging himself to live according to the monastic rule. On the first and last day of each week the monks laid aside the skins which they commonly wore, and came into the sanctuary to receive the holy mysteries. Every day and night they said frequent prayers. Palladius is said to have founded also the earliest convent for women, with a rule similar to that of the men. To these sisters was given the name, quote, Nana, unquote, derived perhaps from an Egyptian word, whence such sisters have almost everywhere been distinguished as, quote, nuns, unquote, or by some equivalent appellation. The general characteristics of the Tabaniate monasticism may be said to be simplicity of life, labor, devotion, and obedience. A greater than Pacomius, St. Basil, was the founder of an order which endures in the Greek church even unto this day. He designed, says his panegyrist Gregory of Nazianzus, to unite the excellencies of the contemplative and the practical life, and his rule bears the stamp of his good sense and knowledge of mankind. He recommends nothing repulsive or unpractical. What he regarded as the proper end and aim of asceticism was to render the body the obedient servant of the higher nature, not to cripple it by unmeaning austerities. His monks were to praise God and pray to him, after the psalmist's example, seven times a day, but they were not to make devotion an excuse for idleness. They, like those of Pacomius, were to labor for their own living at such trades as could be pursued without noise, and especially at the tilling of the ground. All that was earned was the property of the community. No man called anything his own. All that was required was kept in a common storehouse and dispensed at the discretion of the superior. No special rule was made as to the food to be taken, but the superior was to judge what was sufficient in each case. 
the use of wine was not forbidden. The monk's clothing was to be of the simplest and coarsest kind. Signs were, so far as possible, to take the place of words, except in divine service. Children who were presented by their lawful guardians were to be received and trained, but were not to be entered on the list of monks until they were of an age to understand the meaning of monastic vows. All postulants had to undergo a period of probation. St. Basil's mother and sister united with other women to lead a monastic life. He permitted those who desired to enter a convent to take the vows at sixteen or seventeen years of age. The African church, at a somewhat later date, did not permit this before twenty-five, and a law of the empire refused to recognize such vows as valid if taken before the age of forty. St. Basil's institutions were wise, and where he ruled they were doubtless wisely carried out, but the administration of even the wisest code will sometimes fall into incompetent hands. Men found their way into cloisters who had no real vocation for the ascetic life. Some came in who had nothing to leave in the world, and much to gain in the convent, making their profession of godliness a means of gain. Such were eager to find occasion for activity outside their house. These formed the black rabble who incurred the contempt of cultivated heathens, who plundered and destroyed temples, who were constantly employed as the tools of fanatical partisans in the disputes about dogma of which they understood no more than the Ephesian mob did of the teaching of St. Paul. There were many who, like Chrysostom, acquired in monastic retirement, from their own failures and recoveries, a deep knowledge of the weakness of human nature and of the way to peace. But many, attempting to annihilate desires which are deeply rooted in man, were persecuted by impure thoughts, and there was a general tendency to attempt to cure these rather by bodily mortification than by heartfelt devotion. A seeking after Pharisaic self-righteousness, combined with an abject fear of malignant fiends, too often took the place of the trustful spirit of Christian love. A peculiar form of monasticism was that of the Audians, who were, says Epiphanius, restive and schismatical, but not heretical. These took their rise from one Audius, or Udo, a layman of Mesopotamia, whose zeal for religion was offended by what he thought the easy and luxurious lives of the higher clergy. He founded several ascetic societies, in which the Paschal festival was celebrated at the same time as that of the Jews, and the literal interpretation of such passages of scripture as seemed to ascribe a human body to the deity was insisted upon. Audius, at an advanced age, was banished to the northern coast of the Black Sea, where he is said to have introduced monasticism among the Goths. This sect is believed to have disappeared about the end of the fourth century. In the West, as was natural, monasticism ran a very different course. The practical good sense and calmer judgment of the Western leaders gave it such a form as answered to the needs of their church. When first the banished Athanasius brought monks into the West, they were looked upon as something extravagant, but under the fostering care of men like Ambrose in Milan, Jerome in Rome, and Martin in Tours, they soon became familiar objects. In Rome, Jerome attained extraordinary influence, especially with the weaker sex. The country houses of Roman ladies became nunneries, where devout widows and maidens led an ascetic life. Tenderly nurtured women sacrificed to this overmastering impulse position, friends, even life itself. At a time when, in spite of the Christianity of the emperors, a large portion of the Romans who were most distinguished in literature and politics still clung to the old faith, when many of the leading ecclesiastics were engaged in unseemly squabbles and contests for place, the more sensitive souls were driven to seek a refuge in monastic life. Augustine found in Rome, about the year 388, several convents presided over by men of worth and ability. 
where the brethren led a peaceful life without needless restrictions, maintaining themselves by the labor of their hands, and houses of women in which the sisters were instructed in faith and doctrine by the superiors, and occupied themselves in spinning and weaving. Both men and women performed miracles of fasting. The islands on the west coast of Italy, and soon afterwards those on the south coast of Gaul, came to be peopled with men seeking a refuge from the storms of the world and opportunity for Christian contemplation, who mingled their chants with the plashing of the waves. Pious ladies, such as Jerome's friend Fabiola, turned the stream of their munificence to these island monasteries, which, in the terrible times of the Teutonic invasion, became places of refuge for arts and letters, as well as for Christian life. Of these island monasteries, by far the most famous was that of Larinum. Honoratus, born of a noble family of Belgic Gaul, was warned by a divine voice to repair to the island, to which his name was afterwards given. It was then absolutely desolate, but he set himself to establish a monastery there, and soon drew round him a body of disciples, among the first of whom was a young man named Hilary, whom by prayers and tears he prevailed upon to renounce the world. The fame of his piety caused him to be chosen Bishop of Arles, but he held that dignity no more than two years, dying somewhat suddenly in the early part of the year 429. Larinum became an important clergy school for southern Gaul, and trained many bishops, among them Hilary of Arles and Eucarius of Lyons, while two successive abbots, Maximus and Faustus, became bishops of Rees. From this monastery, too, came forth one of the most famous books of the fifth century, the Combinatorium of Vincentius. On the continent, the religious house which was founded by St. Martin in the neighborhood of Poitiers, about the year 360, is regarded as the earliest monastery in Gaul, but a far more important community was that founded in southern Gaul by John Cassian. Cassian was probably born in southern Gaul, to which his writings unquestionably belong, about the year 360. While still young he entered a convent at Bethlehem, where he received his first training in religion. Once initiated in the ascetic life, he was seized with a longing to visit the native land of asceticism, Egypt. Among the Egyptian monks and hermits he remained in all ten years, and then passed on to Constantinople, where he was ordained deacon by the great John Chrysostom. When the patriarch was banished, it is thought that Cassian paid a visit on his behalf to Rome. Ten years later we find him in Marseilles, near which place he founded two convents, for men and for women respectively, after the model of those which he had seen in the East. By the example of these monasteries, and still more by the series of writings which he now began, he gave an immense impulse to the spread of monastic institutions, especially in Gaul and Spain. He died at a very advanced age, in the highest reputation for sanctity, probably shortly after the year 433. He wrote in later life on the Nestorian controversy, but his most famous works are the book on monastic institutions, and the account of certain conversations which he describes himself as having held, in company with his friend Germanus, with some of the most renowned Egyptian anchorites. In the first-named book he describes principally the Egyptian system with a view to the instruction of Gaul. He shews us the dress of the Egyptian monks, the girdle of their loins, the hood just covering the head, the linen tunic with sleeves barely reaching to the elbow, the cord through which the skirts of the garment may be drawn for greater freedom in labor, the short mantle over head and shoulders, the goatskin thrown over all, the sandals on the feet and the staff in the hand. He wisely orders that if a hair shirt is worn, he does not recommend it, it shall be concealed, not made a show of. 
and generally he reminds the brethren that a monk's dress should be distinguished by simplicity not singularity and that the egyptian dress is not in all respects suited for the climate of gaul the postulant for admission must sit at least ten days before the door of the monastery enduring the scorn and the contemptuous questions of the brethren as they pass to and fro when admitted he spends his first year in a novice's room outside the convent proper under the care of one of the older monks and when permitted to enter the convent itself he is again under the special charge of one of the seniors until he perfectly learned the lesson of implicit obedience if he cannot endure the trial the clothes in which he entered are put upon him again and he is sent forth into the world it is worth noting that although the monk must part with his worldly goods the house which he enters is on no account to receive them once within the monastery the monk is to have nothing of his own not even his thoughts the meals of the galician monks were to be meagre but not so scanty as those in egypt which cassian is aware would not be sufficient to sustain life in gaul in egypt they were eaten in silence in cappadocia with reading of scripture of offences some were to be corrected by spiritual rebuke some with stripes or by expulsion from the house in the latter portion of the work cassian treats of the principal sins and failings to which hermits and monks were especially liable their causes and their cure these are gluttony sins of the flesh avarice anger gloominess torpor vanity and pride these seem to be mentioned in the order of the difficulty of their treatment the coarser and more obvious sins which can be readily subjected to discipline stand first then come those more subtle sins which are often the product of the ascetic life itself torpor was the special trial of the solitary whom it attacked most in the weary hour of noon whence it was known as the demon that destroyeth in the noonday useful labor was the great antidote and here the writer takes occasion to commend the industry of the monks of egypt who not only maintained themselves by their labor but also assisted to support others the nature of vanity that juggling fiend which can put on the disguise of a virtue and which when it seems to be overcome rises again to make the sinner vain of his own victory is sketched with a masterly hand pride though the first of sins is nevertheless the last to make its appearance it rises out of the excellent virtues which a man possesses and spoils them all with the combating of this most subtle evil the book concludes the quote, collations unquote, may be regarded as a supplement to the institutes being intended to lead ascetics to a yet higher degree of holiness than that contemplated in the earlier work cassian recognizes the much greater difficulty of his present task inasmuch as the forming of the inner man so as to enable it steadily to contemplate god and to rise towards perfection is greater than that of subjecting the outer man to authority and precept these collations which were specially written with a view to being read by monks and hermits were intended to point the way to the ideal perfection of ascetic life by shewing how the principal questions likely to arise in such a life were treated by those who were its leaders here we find the results of meditation as well as the lessons of practical life philosophic discussion as well as moral precept frequently illustrated by examples from the stores of memory or legend the end and aim of the monk's calling the respective advantages of the monastic and the solitary life the three great renunciations which the monk makes of his earthly riches of his own passions and propensities and of the present world perfection and most of all divine love spiritual knowledge and especially the various methods of interpreting holy scripture 
God's gifts of grace, under which head many miracles are related, with the wholesome caution that the great lesson to be learned of Christ is not to work wonders, but to be meek and lowly of heart, the various kinds of prayer and thanksgiving, such and such like are the subjects treated of. The speculative spirit which is visible throughout shews that the great leaders of asceticism were not unfaithful to the Christian philosophy, which was still found in the Alexandrian schools. The influence of the book was immense, as St. Benedict ordered it to be constantly read at a certain hour in the houses of his order, and it was perhaps the philosophic thought which is found in many of the collations which gave to the monks that bent to mental toil and abstract discussion which made the monasteries of the West for many generations the chief centres of literature and intellectual life. But all the efforts of previous founders of monasteries fall into the shade when we compare them with those of Benedict of Nursia. The career of the Benedictine order is the most signal testimony to the virtue and the wisdom of its first legislator. Benedict, the son of a noble family in Umbria, received a literary education in Rome, but, shocked at the dissipated life which he saw around him, fled at an early age from the great city and took refuge in an almost inaccessible cave in the Sabine Hills, near Subiaco, where he depended for sustenance on the charity of the neighbors. Like very many who have attempted to crush the natural passions, he was haunted by visions of the fair forms which he had left behind. He shared the fate of other famous hermits, in that his solitude became populous with the throng of men who were attracted by his fame. It was probably this circumstance which induced him to forsake Subiaco with his companions, and to journey southward to Monte Cassino in Campania, where he founded what became the most famous monastery in the world, the model after which, more or less directly, all other western monasteries have been formed. The rule which he gave was stern, but not too stern for human frailty to endure. It trained men to be strong, not fanciful. At the head of every monastery was a paternal ruler, an abbot, chosen by the major part of the monks themselves. Under him was a, quote, prepositus, unquote, or provost, whom he appointed, and again under him, if the monastery was so large as to require them, subordinates called, quote, decani, unquote, or deans, who took the superintendence each of ten brethren. As each new brother was admitted to a monastery, he was required to pledge himself in the most solemn manner to the three great principles of monastic life, firmness of resolution, change of life, and obedience to God and his saints. As it was of the very essence of monastic vows that they should be lifelong, no one was allowed to take them until he had passed through a period of probation, in which every opportunity was given to the novice to learn the real nature of his own calling, and to the superiors of the society to discover whether he had the qualities which a good monk should have. With a view of deterring waverers, the act of reception was made an especially solemn one. The novice to be received had to lay on the altar of the church of the monastery, with solemn invocation of the saints whose relics were there, a written engagement to observe the rule. The man who could not with a clear conscience affirm his earnest intention of remaining in the brotherhood to his life's end could be no true monk, nor the man who could not resign his natural wishes and passions so as to be guided in all things by the monastic rule. As in the rule of Pacomius, so in the Benedictine, not only did the brethren observe the several hours of the divine office, but they had to undertake regular manual labor, often of some severity. Idleness was, their founder thought, the mortal enemy of the soul. In order to cut off any excuse for the monks absenting themselves from their house, each convent was enjoined to provide for itself. 
so far as might be, all necessary supplies of food and clothes and the like. The third vow bound the monk to the most absolute and implicit obedience to the superior. Whatever was commanded by one in authority, he was bound to obey at once as a divine command. This prompt obedience was the first step in the road to humility. By it the monk testified that nothing was dearer to him than the work of Christ. When the novice was required to regard his abbot as one who stood in the place of Christ, we may clearly see that the Benedictine order was from the first a church within the church. What the bishop was to the diocese, that was the abbot to his convent. The difference was that the narrower circle aimed at a higher level of Christian life than was possible for the wider, and as the strength of the church lies in the fact that it is a growing tree capable of adapting itself to its environment, so the Benedictine order, without departing from the intention of its founder, has been able to accommodate itself to each of the many ages through which it has lived. Benedict did not enjoin upon his monks an excessive asceticism. While his principles were stern and unbending, he did not make the monastic life wearisome by petty restrictions. His rule became the model for all the monastic rules of the West, in which we consequently find, with all differences of detail, a certain uniformity of type. The great glory of the Benedictine order is, that it impressed upon a world in the process of dissolution the capacity for renewal which is to be found in a life of order, industry, obedience, and simplicity, whether in the humbler office of tilling the land, or in the higher of preserving literature and promoting sound and thorough study, the Benedictines have a well-earned fame, though they wrought for the sake of the work, and not for their own glory. The literary labors, however, for which the Benedictines have been so distinguished, were not directly prescribed by the founder. The credit of setting monks to work at literature belongs to Cassiodorus. Magnus Aurelius Cassiodorus, or Cassiodorius, was a Roman of distinguished family, who held high offices of state under the Gothic king Theodoric. On the fall of the East Gothic kingdom in 540, being now an old man, he withdrew to his property in Brutium, where he founded a convent, the Monasterium Beveriens. He thought it nobler to be the slave of Christ than to rule the kingdoms of this world. In the wreck of the empire he was anxious to preserve learning. To this end he gave to his society his own excellent library, which he continued to augment until his death. Not only were the monks incited by his example to the study of classical and sacred literature, he trained them likewise to the careful transcription of manuscripts, in the purchase of which large sums were continually dispersed. Bookbinding, gardening, and medicine were among the pursuits of the less intellectual members of the fraternity. The system took root and spread beyond the boundaries of Italy, so that the multiplication of manuscripts became gradually as much a recognized employment of monastic life as prayer or fasting. The tendency to asceticism was not unopposed. Even St. Chrysostom, himself a monk and an earnest advocate of monastic life, emphatically rejected the distinction which was in his day commonly drawn between the counsels of perfection which were for the few, and the easier precepts which might suffice for the many. He knew how degrading was the notion that men could not attain true Christian life in the midst of the family and the world. The Beatitudes, the precepts of the Lord and his apostles, these are not for the monk alone, but for all the members of Christ. A man who has a wife and children may see the Lord, as Isaiah saw him, if he has but Isaiah's spirit. Those who run away from the world in which the battle has to be fought are deserters from the great army. A very different kind of critic was Jovinian, who had also originally been a monk, 
but had become convinced of the unsoundness of the principle on which monasticism was generally defended. He declared, it was said, that the merits of virgins are just the same as those of the married and the widowed who have been baptized into Christ, if the general holiness of their lives is the same, and that abstinence from food has no higher merit than the thankful participation of it. Inorthodox opinions are also attributed to him with which we are not at present concerned. Jovinian's reasoning is said to have influenced certain nuns so strongly that they broke their vows and married. His teaching excited the indignation of Pope Siricius, who in a consistory of the Roman clergy condemned and excommunicated him and eight of his adherents as guilty of innovation and heresy. Jovinian betook himself to Milan, hoping perhaps for the protection of the emperor, who then held his court there. But in matters of faith, Ambrose was there almost all-powerful, and from Milan also the heretic had to flee. Ambrose also issued a letter of warning against some of his own monks, who, like Jovinian, denied the peculiar merit of celibacy. Monks, as such, were at first simply lay people, and attended the services, or at any rate received the Eucharist, at some neighboring church. In process of time, however, it was felt to be unfitting that the brethren of a monastery should depend for sacred ministrations on the clergy of a church which, as the founders of religious houses preferred remote sites, was often at some distance, and it became customary for one of the older brethren, generally the abbot himself, to be a presbyter and to administer the sacraments within the convent walls. The society had then precisely the same relationship to the bishop of the diocese as a village with its presbyter. It was not until the time of Benedict that it was regarded as essential for a convent to have its own church and its own clergy. But as the monastic life was regarded as the highest form of Christianity, and attracted many men who would otherwise have become clergymen, it became usual from the time of Pope Siricius to ordain monks. From the end of the fourth century, in fact, the monasteries came to be looked upon as the best schools for the clergy, and especially for the bishops. Monks were not unfrequently ordained against their own wish, and even those of the clergy who were not monks frequently lived in a community which differed little from a convent. The old custom of making monasteries subject to the bishop of the diocese was broken in upon in Africa early in the sixth century. Religious houses there sought greater independence by making themselves subject to distant bishops, especially to the bishop of Carthage. Elsewhere, the right of each bishop to take the spiritual oversight of convents within the diocese was strenuously maintained, but this was carefully restricted to such matters as belonged to the office of a bishop. The general care of the, quote, lay multitude, unquote, of monks, was reserved to the abbot alone, unless the interference of the bishop was specially invoked. The imperial government, which found it necessary to provide that men should not escape their civic duties, and especially the duty of tax-paying, by receiving ordination, made an exception in favor of those who had become monks in early youth. These might receive orders, forfeiting thereupon a fourth part of their property. The law also provided that a married person, man or woman, should not carry off all the family property on adopting the monastic life, and it dissolved the marriage when one of the parties took the vows. It deprived parents of the right to forbid their children to enter a monastery, or to disinherit them for that cause, and masters also could not prevent their bond-servants from becoming monks. But if it made entrance easy, it made exit difficult. A monk who left his monastery, 
whether to enter another or to go into the world, was to leave whatever goods he had in the hands of that which he had first entered. End of chapter 12, part 4